And a reading from Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One each and hope, it's, it's good to be with you uh, this morning. And as always, it's the word of God. That, that calls us, that collects us, that, that crafts us. And while this might seem a rather strange passage, while this might seem a rather irre- irrelevant passage, I want to argue that this is actually a very important 
passage, especially for the church in understanding who we are and how God has called us to be the people we are. So with that faith and the assurance of God's word that everything that he gives us in scripture is good and profitable for our salvation, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for the chance to come together as the people of God, the people of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless these words and that they would be faithful to your intentions, uh, to this sometimes difficult passage, Lord. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, today's sermon in particular is, in a sense, a, a very Reformed sermon, and, and that's because of the particular text that we're looking at. That, that's because the text we have at hand, this, this is very much a text about the covenant, the covenant of God. And as we said in an earlier sermon, the, the Reformed tradition, the tradition of which one ancient hope is a part it is a tradition structured around the reality of the covenant. And here we come to the sign and the seal of the covenant, to circumcision. And as we'll see, this sign and seal will also give way to another sign and seal, that of baptism. And we don't often ponder the importance of baptism. And for many, I mean, to be honest, these are conversations that I've had the practice of infant baptism can be, for many, an unsurpassable obstacle to Presbyterianism. And it's for the, just these reasons, though, that the present passage proves so crucial. Because when we neglect these signs and these seals, whether by way of, of not thinking upon them, not meditating upon them, or failing to actually administer them, then we forfeit a key means by which God communicates his promise and his faithfulness to us. And of course, I should put in here a disclaimer, a caveat. We're certainly not going to trace the whole Reformed doctrine of, of baptism, but I do hope here that we can trace some key contours. And towards that end, I want to look at this particular passage, Genesis 17, under three distinct headings. The sign and the seal given, the sign and the seal revealed, and the sign and the seal expanded. So let's start first with the sign and the seal given. So if we look at Genesis 17, 1 through 8, the first part of the passage, we find that God promises Abraham a number of gracious gifts. And, and these are gifts that we've seen before. But things start to happen Abraham's name is, is changed. We've been calling him Abraham, but, but actually up until this point, his name has been Abram, which means father. And now his name is changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. We find again that the land of Canaan is promised to Abraham. And also, most importantly, in Genesis 17.7, we find the following promise. Quote, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
What God is promising here is that he would be Abraham's God and that Abraham and his offspring would be God's people. And the promise that comes here to Abraham is not a new promise. It's it's a reiteration of the promises that we've seen throughout these chapters. Abraham was first promised these things in Genesis 12, and then in Genesis 15, we are told that Abraham is counted as righteous. He's justified because he believed in the promise of God. So what we find is the promise has been given. We find that Abraham has believed the promise, but now we find something new. We find a further development of the promise that has come to define the life of Abraham. Look with me again at the text at Genesis 17, 10 through 11. God tells Abraham the following. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And what's happening here is Abraham is being given a sign and a seal of the promise. And when we speak of a sign and seal, we're using the language that Paul himself uses to describe circumcision. If you look with me at Romans 4, 11, Paul says the following, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so the circumcision was given as a sign in the seal of the righteousness that Abraham received by God of the good and proper standing that Abraham had before God. And again, it's a sign and a seal of that righteousness which he had by faith, by believing the promise, by having faith in God, by trusting God. So what we have here is a sign that God is Abraham's God and Abraham and his offspring are God's people. But we have to ask, is this just a sign? Is this only a physical sign of a deeper spiritual reality? Well, it's, it's more than that. Again, Paul tells us that this is also a seal. And what do we mean by seal here? What does Paul have in mind? Well, on, on this point, um, Presbyterian theologian and pastor Brian Chapel is, is, is very, very helpful. And uh, I'm going to quote him at length here. It's, it's a fairly straightforward passage, but he, he elaborates what Paul is saying. He tries to cast light on what Paul is saying by writing the following. Quote, The seal image that the apostle calls to mind is that of wax affixed to a letter or dark document and marked with a signet ring to authenticate the source and validity of the document's context or contents. The seal acted as a visible pledge by the author to honor what he had covenanted to do in the document when the conditions it described were met. Circumcision was God's way of marking his people with a visible pledge to honor his covenant for those who expressed faith in him. Just as a seal is the pledge of its author that he will uphold his promises when the described conditions are met, and here's here's the most important part, so circumcision was God's pledge to provide all the blessings of his covenant when the condition of faith was met. So circumcision was God's pledge to provide all the blessings of his covenant 
when the conditions of faith were met. So a seal is a kind of visible pledge. And in what Paul has in mind here, his operative notion is that of a wax seal. And it's, it's put on a document, and what it does is it commits that person to the course of action laid out in that document. But we might think of other modern examples too, that of a contract, when you sign your name on a contract. When this happens, you bind yourself to the conditions of the contract. And actually, if you break that contract, you can face court, you can face criminal charges if you meet, if you fail to meet those obligations that you've, you've, you've committed yourself to in the contract. But we can also think of another example. Remember we, uh, when we talked about Genesis 15, we used the example of a, of a marriage ceremony to better understand the covenant ceremony that was happening in Genesis 15. And we looked at the work of philosopher J.L. Austin, and he was making the point that when you say, I do, in the covenant ceremony of, of marriage, something happens. Reality is, is changed. When you say, I do, spiritually you become one flesh, but you even become one legal entity in the eyes of the state. When you say, I do, something actually happens. We talked about how there's a similar course of action in God's covenant with Abraham. God binds himself inseparably to Abraham. I now pronounce you man and wife. I now pronounce you human and God. And again, this points us to that preeminent promise that God gives in this chapter to Abraham. Let me reiterate that. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, to, be to, God, sorry, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. He's pledging to become Abraham's God. This is God essentially saying, I do. But think about a marriage ceremony and the other aspects that are involved. We also find the exchange of rings. We find the exchange of visible pledges. To quote the, the Anglican order of, of marriage, so this is in the, the book of, of Common Prayer, this is what the, the Anglican minister is, is supposed to say during the marriage ceremony, uh, the following. He has the ring, he has the ring, and he says, Bless, O Lord, this ring to be a sign of the vows by which this man and this woman have bound themselves to each other. So, so think about the wedding ring when one spouse gives the other the wedding ring. It's a sign and it's a seal of the one's commitment to the other. And when one spouse looks at their wedding ring, they see the visible pledge given by the other. It's, it's not their own pledge. Their, their pledge is on the hand of their spouse, but it's the pledge of the other. And in the same way, circumcision is a visible pledge given to Abraham. It's not Abraham's visible pledge to God, but it's God's visible pledge to Abraham. It's not the sign and the seal of God's promise or sorry, it's not the sign and the seal of Abraham's promise, it's the sign and the seal of God's promise. In a sense, 
when God gives Abraham the sign and the seal of circumcision, he is saying, with this sign and seal, Abraham, I thee wed. And what is pledged? Well, it's the reality of Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Circumcision is the pledge to Abraham, to his household, and to all of his offspring that they are made righteous by faith, that they come to a right standing before God, that they become God's people by trusting God's promise. Circumcision leads us to trust that trust is all that we need. These are the conditions for being God's people that God himself has laid down and given his contractual signature to in circumcision. Believe God's promises and become God's people. This is God's pledge to us, the pledge made visible in circumcision. And it's not just a pledge to Abraham, it's a pledge to his entire household and all of the offspring after him. All the males of his household are circumcised to show that all of his household has been set apart. This is a household built wholly upon the promise of God. And just as this promise has come to define the life of Abraham, so it will come to define Abraham's entire household. And that's because everyone in that household is offered the same promise, the same condition. Simply believe. Believe God's promise and become God's people. But why circumcision? Why is this a suitable sign and seal for the covenant condition of faith? Well, that brings us to the next point, the sign and seal revealed. Now, when you think about circumcision, it is a cutting of, of flesh. And, and for the male in particular, it's the most sensitive and, and personal part of his flesh, of his body. But it's also directly tied to Abraham becoming a great multitude. It's the part of the body directly tied to Abraham having physical offspring. So when you take this together, what is being communicated? Well, what circumcision does is it brings together both the shedding of blood and offspring, which are two key components of the covenant. Recall in Genesis 15, we, we, we looked at the covenant ceremony and we looked at the covenant conditions. And generally speaking, when you did a covenant, both parties committed to their words, to one another, and they walked through the animals and when one did that, they were saying, if I break my commitment, if I break my obligation, if I break my word to you, may I end up like these butchered, slaughtered, and killed animals. But remember again, in, in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't go through the animals. It's only God that goes through the animals. So God, in effect, is saying, Abraham, if I break my promise to you, may I end up like these animals? And that's impossible. That's not going to happen. But God is saying even more. He's saying, Abraham, if you break your promise to me, which Abraham will, may I, Abraham, end up like these animals. When the covenant is broken, there will be blood. But it will not be Abraham's blood 
or not at least in any fatal sense. Of course, circumcision includes bleeding, but it's, it's only bleeding very lightly. The cutting and the bleeding of circumcision is not a sign in a seal of Abraham's blood. We might say that Abraham's blood is just a kind of, of prop. Abraham's blood is like the wax in a wax seal. Abraham's blood is like the ink inside of the pen by which you sign the contract. What Abraham's cutting and blood signifies in seals is that his covenant with God relies upon God himself taking the punishment, the butchering, the slaughtering for any failures on Abraham's part to keep his pledge to God. Abraham is learning that his covenant with God is only possible because of the blood of another. In time, this will be maintained through the blood of animals and Old Testament sacrifices, but even these sacrifices ultimately point to the blood of another. The sign and seal of circumcision tells us that God has taken upon himself the cutting, the bleeding, the butchering, the slaughtering that is due for those who forsake the covenant. Yet these conditions of faith are not specific to Abraham. God not only changes Abraham's name, he also changes the name of of Sarah. We've been calling her Sarah, but this is actually where she becomes Sarah. She was Sarai, and now she's called Sarah, and, and both of these names mean something like queen or princess, but the name change here tells us something very important that these are the same conditions given to Sarah herself. And so Abraham and Sarah, in a very literal sense, both of them together, must believe that God can bring life into any situation. This is required in the promise of offspring. Both Abraham and Sarah are quite aged at this point. They're approaching physical death. Even more, not only has Sarah suffered from infertility, But as we will find in the next chapter, she's already experienced menopause. If they are both called to believe that God will bring life here, that a child will be born to them. However, this is not the first time that such a promise has been made, nor such a promise has been believed. Look back at Genesis 3. In response to human sin, we find God cursing the good creation, and it becomes subject to futility, to decay, to death. Yet God also gives Adam and Eve a promise. He promises them that one of their offspring will crush the head of the serpent, will crush the head of Satan. And so despite the death that now abounds, despite the death that is encroaching not just the world but their own lives, God himself nonetheless promises life. He promises life where it looks like there's only death. And we have to remember that Eve herself is not named until after the promise. Prior to that, she's simply referred to as the woman. We find in Genesis 3.20, after God's promise, quote, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. Adam named her Eve because he responded to, because he believed in the promise. Adam and Eve believed in this promise of life, this promise of offspring, despite all of the death that was surrounding them. And we see the same promise continued here. 
As it was with Adam and Eve, so it is with Abraham and Sarah. For it's from the physical offspring of Abraham and Sarah that this one who will crush the head of the serpent will also come. They will have a child, and after many generations of physical descent, he will be the one that will come to crush the head of the serpent. They believed the promise, and so Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, met the conditions of the covenant. And that's also how all of the rest of us become offspring of Abraham, by sharing the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Sarah believed, and it was counted to her as righteousness. Adam and Eve believed, and it was counted to them as righteousness. Do we believe? Has it been counted to us as righteousness? Anyone who has been saved by God, who has been counted righteous by God, has been made righteous, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, because they have believed the promise of God. This is the covenant condition and the very condition pledged by circumcision. For the promised offspring who crushes the head of the serpent will be the one who takes the covenant curse. It is the shedding of his blood that is communicated in the cutting and bleeding of circumcision. And this offspring, of course, is Jesus Christ. He has lived the perfect human life before God, loving God and neighbor perfectly. He alone has kept his pledge to God. He has taken upon himself the curse of the covenant for all the ways that we have not kept our word to God. The cross of Christ is God being slaughtered, being butchered, being killed, just like all of those animals that God passed through all those years before. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise. He's the promised offspring of Adam and Eve, of Abraham and Sarah. He's the reason why they can be made righteous by faith. For when we have faith and trust in Christ, Christ gives us his righteousness and he takes our guilt. And this is key. The righteousness that's credited to Abraham by faith is the same that is credited to us by faith. The only righteousness that has ever been credited by faith, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Recall that in Genesis 17.7, this covenant is also called an everlasting covenant, which means it not only reaches back to Adam and Eve, but it also reaches forward to us. It's everlasting, so it's not ended. But the administration of this covenant has changed, which brings us to our final point. The sign and the seal expanded. Now, in the New Testament, we find the same everlasting covenant, the covenant of grace, but we find an expanded administration, an expanded application. The land of promise, the land of Canaan, has become the entire world, the entire cosmos. When we look at the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb was actually only killed in the place of the firstborn son. But when we look at the New Testament administration of the Passover, which is the Lord's Supper, we look at Jesus Christ, who was killed in the place of every son and every daughter. And we find the same kind of expansion with, uh, with circumcision. In Colossians 2, 11 through 12, Paul writes, "...in Christ also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands." By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
So what Paul is doing here is he's connecting circumcision with baptism. What circumcision signified and sealed is the work of Christ. But Paul is saying that actually uh, baptism does this more fully. Circumcision tells us that through the shedding of blood, Christ suffered the covenant curse on our behalf. Baptism too tells us this. Baptism tells us that we must be We must die and we must be buried with Christ, but it also tells us that we must be raised to new life. Baptism shows us that both the death we deserve and the new life with God that we don't deserve but have been given freely by Christ is signified and sealed to us. And as a quick aside, the Presbyterian tradition does affirm both modes of baptism, both sprinkling and immersion, though it does favor sprinkling. But it's important to note that both communicate both death and life. When you think of immersion, what's communicated, you're going down in the water, you're buried with Christ, and then you emerge, you're raised to new life. And so Christ's death and new life is communicated. His death and new life on our behalf. Sprinkling also does this. It it, it harkens back to the Old Testament practice of sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice upon God's people. And of course, all of these sacrifices themselves pointed to Christ. And what this communicates is that we've been covered with Christ's blood. But even more, the sprinkling communicates the Old Testament practice of anointing. And to be sure, each of these anointings pointed forward to the anointing of the Holy Spirit, where God himself comes to dwell within the believer. The ultimate promise of the covenant is that God would be our people, sorry, God would be our God and we would be his people. This is a promise of intimacy, of fellowship, of dwelling with God. And sprinkling signifies and seals that very promise of God, not only of him dwelling with us, but also of dwelling within us. And unlike circumcision, every child of God, every son and every daughter can receive the administration of the sacrament. But like circumcision, As a Presbyterian, we believe that this is to be administered to the entire household. And this, I would argue, is the trajectory we see in Acts, that entire households are baptized, just as Abraham's entire household was circumcised. As Peter says to the crowd at Pentecost, the promise is for you and for your children. And this was always the logic of the sign and seal of the covenant, To begin denying it to infants and children would be to make it something else. It would be to make it less expansive in its administration, which again, it actually cuts against the entire trajectory we've been tracing. We also want to remember whose pledge are we looking at in, in baptism. We can often think of baptism as our pledge to God, that it's our commitment to him to change our life and live according to his word. And these are all good and necessary pledges, but equating them with baptism actually undercuts the logic of the covenant. Baptism, just like its Old Testament predecessor, is not our visible pledge to God. It's God's visible pledge to us. When we think of baptism, we're reminded of God's pledge, a pledge of faithfulness, a pledge of God's commitment, not our own Otherwise, our baptism would be a source of anxiety, reminding us of all the ways that we failed to make good on our commitments to God. It would be the remembrance of a pledge continually broken. So when you think of baptism, what we're to think about is the covenant conditions that God himself has set down. 
How have we become God's people? How have we come to a right relationship with God? It's only by faith, faith in the work of Christ wherein he gives us his righteousness and he takes our guilt. That's the covenant. That's the structure of the covenant. That's the condition of the covenant. That's what's signified and sealed in circumcision and baptism. And that's why when we look at our baptism, it's not a source of anxiety, but assurance. Because baptism lays down the same covenant condition that just like Abraham, we are credited as righteousness. We are credited as righteous because of our faith in Christ. Christ was cut off and his blood was shed. Christ was buried in our place. God in Christ has borne the guilt for all of our broken pledges. This is the message of baptism. Thank God that it is his pledge to us and not our pledge to him. And so to conclude, the application here I think is fairly direct. If you have faith in Christ and you've not been baptized, get baptized. When we neglect baptism, we're, we're like a spouse that, that refuses to wear the ring given to us by the other. We neglect to cherish the sign and seal of the other's love. Baptism is the sign and seal of God's love for us, his sacrifice in Christ. This is God saying with baptism, I the wed. Do not neglect this. And if you're a Christian and you've not baptized your children, and again, I, I have to say this as a Presbyterian minister, I would encourage you to baptize them. This is God's visible pledge to them. When we baptize our children, we're saying something very important. We're saying, have faith, my child, and then you will be reconciled to God. This world will tell you to strive and strive and strive, but look back on your baptism and then take assurance and rest. Simply trust that Christ has done it all for you. In baptism, my child, God himself has given you his word. He has signed a contract with you that faith alone will bring you back to him. In baptism, we tell our children at the very beginning of their existence that while life might seem like ceaseless striving and toil, it's really a matter of receiving, of receiving everything as a gift from God. And that's the promise of God that is meant to define their life. Think about the other contracts that we can set up for our children. Maybe we, we've set them up with, with insurance. Maybe they've set them up with contracts for college savings. Maybe we've set them up for contracts of guardianship. But have we neglected this most important of all contracts? Perhaps you've had some investor sign a contract regarding your child's future. But have you let God himself sign his name to the contract of the covenant with your child? You will hold the investor to their word, and God asks you to do the same with him. Even more, baptism is the entrance into the visible covenant community, into the household of, of God. And according to our denomination's book of, of church order, Baptism is not something that you can administer privately. You have to administer in the presence of the entire congregation. And not only the parents, but everyone, all of the congregants actually make a vow concerning the child. The congregation is asked, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents and the Christian nurture 
of this child. When you are baptized into the church, you enter the visible covenant community and others are responsible for you and you are responsible for others. And so when the child is baptized and we respond with these vows, we are taking responsibility for the nurturing of this child's growth in faith. And we're not a big church. It's, it's not that hard to get to know everyone here that comes to church. And I see that as a great benefit. So maybe even right now, ask yourself, do you know all of the names of the kids in this church? Do you know the names of everyone who you have vowed and are responsible to nurture? Maybe make it a goal to, to go and to meet and talk with a new child each week. And this can be hard. You might have to work through one-word answers and, and silences. But you are responsible for this child. And among other things, you need to show that child that this church community is a gift. It doesn't matter if conversations are hard. You are committed to this child, not because of anything in the child, but because of the covenant of God of which you are both a part. And taken together, what does this tell us? The centrality of trust in God. Because in some way, shape, or form, each sin that we perform flows from a lack of trusting God. We don't trust that he will provide. We don't trust that he really has our best interest in mind. We don't trust that he really is who he says he is. Yet, all the time, every single day, we trust some fallen person just as prone to weakness and to lying as each of us are because they have signed their name on some piece of paper. Yet, do we trust God? Circumcision and baptism are his ways of signing his name on the dotted line. It is God's visible pledge. It's God's contract with us. You budget your money according to how much your employer has by contract committed to give you. Do you budget your life according to what God has committed to give you? To be your God and for you to be his people? Whose contract do you actually trust more? Imagine how different your life would be. Imagine how much different my life would be if I really, really trusted him in all things. Imagine the anxiety we could leave behind and the assurance we could rest in. Imagine how we would spend our money, our time, our resources, our influence, our careers, our words. And that trust is ultimately what circumcision and baptism is about. Trust him. For he has signed the most binding and unbreakable contract of all in his very own blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Hold him to that contract. He asks you to do so. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you have bound yourself to us by the blood of Christ. Help us to take that seriously. Help us to trust you and help that trust to flow into all areas of our life. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.